Good morning. This morning we're going to continue in our series on Lent. And just as a recap for those of you who uh, haven't been following us, or if you're like Mickey, you fall asleep during the service, just to kind of bring you up to speed. Picking on somebody new today. Frank was getting tired. We started off with Lenten thinking, and that Lent is not just about buckling down and trying to fulfill these, these, these tasks, and the three tasks of Lent were prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, but that Lent was actually meant to be failed. Because if we fail, it's a reminder that we need Jesus. And so the whole purpose of Lent is to stretch us, is to press us, and ultimately bring us to the place where we go face to face with the Father. And we say, thank you for giving us your Son. And it takes us into the season where we follow into Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then of course Easter, where we celebrate the death, resurrection, and continued life of Jesus, and the salvation that we've received through Him. Terrence so eloquently brought us through prayer, and I want to say that his numbers on the stream are double mine. I don't know what that means, but I'm not jealous. I'm thrilled because literally it is exactly double what I normally get. So well done, Terrence. We went to fasting last week, which was one of the more challenging ones. It's not something that in our tradition it's more commonly done. And today we're going to actually dip into the one that I actually find the hardest, and that's almsgiving. Now, almsgiving doesn't actually specifically show up in the Old Testament. It is referred to in this connection with uh, the expression of of implied compassion in connection to God for the widows and the orphans. And we know that the, the whole exile and the, ex, the, 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 the Israelites being taken away from, from their promised land had to do with bad worship. And Jesus, or God, sorry, at the time said, the bad worship is connected to the way you treated widows and orphans. So we know in Scripture there's this connection between God's love for the poor and our worship. And in loving God, it's about pouring ourselves out for others and specifically having concern for the needy. This shows up in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And if you read those books, if you can get through them, they are filled with God's love for the poor. The New Testament, of course, stresses almsgiving, and it actually holds it up as a mark of righteousness or right living. And Jesus was very specific about his concern for the poor, and he places a considerable emphasis on the way we give. So there's a heart matter connected to this. It isn't meant to be simply put on show, but we actually need to connect what we do with compassion for people. And these gifts are to be offered sincerely and not just seeking praise of others. So he talks about, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And this shows up, of course, through the entire Gospels with Matthew and Luke, very much focused on these themes. In the early Christian community, the very first officers of election, the deacons, were called in order to ensure the fair distribution of these alms, of the gifts to the poor. And the needs of the poor were an integral part of the early church's response to ministry. It wasn't just about sharing the gospel. It was connected to care for people. And every Christian was called to give a weekly portion specifically to the needy. 
We see this in Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians. It shows up again and again and again. This connection between caring for the poor and righteousness or right living. And it's not because it justifies a person. It's not about salvation. I'm not saved because I give to the poor. It's about a response to the saving action of Jesus Christ in my life. And so this is the right action for those who claim Christ. It's a discipleship And it's the way we pour out for others in response to God through Christ pouring out to us. So combined, Scripture indicates that there's this love for neighbor, and our neighbor has an actual, in the scriptural law, a rightful claim on our alms. And this is a powerful reality in Scripture. It's not that we give to our neighbor because it's a good thing to do. We give to our neighbor, we give to the poor because they have a legal right in the eyes of God to our care. And so we come to this idea of Lent. And so Lent is calling us into care for the poor, not just for these 40 days, but to entrench it as a part of our life as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, what does Jesus say about almsgiving? Now, I want to tell you, the passage we're going to read this morning is the most difficult passage in all of Scripture for me personally. I grew up in a fairly wealthy family, not so much a silver spoon in my mouth, but we had things. And so there was this natural love of money that was birthed within me. And I've watched my parents struggle with this. They're very generous, but it's been an area of struggle for my father that was so wonderfully passed on to me. And so when I made the decision to leave business and come into full-time ministry, it was hard for me to give up the privilege and the trappings that come with a business life. And it was this passage here that ultimately led me to make that decision. Mark writes it this way. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and your mother. So we have this man coming up, and he, we know this from the other Gospels, that he's a, he's a ruler, he's rich, and he's young. And he comes running up to Jesus, and so he sees Jesus as this good teacher, So he's still not recognizing him as the Messiah, but he's got a sense that Jesus is somebody special. And he wants to justify himself. He wants to know, what is it going to take for me to get life eternal? And Jesus comes back to him and repeats randomly these parts of the Ten Commandments. And the man responds, teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt a genuine love for him. So he sees him. He sees him in this trapped idea of obeying the law. And he doesn't judge him. He doesn't mock him. He doesn't scorn him. 
He loves him. And he says, there's still one thing you haven't done. One thing you lack in the NIV. He told him, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. And so we have this story, we have this young man who's come and he said, how do I achieve eternal life? How am I going to be justified before God? And he comes with this this preconception, a privilege, I'm wealthy and so I'm already seeing the blessings of God poured out through me, therefore I must already be justified. He honestly figured he was going to get back from Jesus. Well, because you're rich, you can see that you've already been blessed by God, therefore you're good. And Jesus then hits him right where his idol is and says, no, you've got to give all this away. See, the man assumes that one can find goodness within human resources or human activity. You see, God demands more. And God's demands are more costly than he ever imagined. He comes looking to be confirmed, to be reassured that he's on the right path. And Jesus takes and points him to the Ten Commandments. But he specifically points to the ones that refer to our relationship with one another. And so he's saying it's not just about your relationship with God. You have to be caring for your relationship with others. And so he says to him, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. But Jesus looked at him. You see, he claims that he's completed everything. Jesus loves him in this. So Jesus is saying this in a way not to condemn us. Not to somehow make us feel less than. It's an invitation into relationship with him and with those around us. He doesn't sneer at his claim. He just simply challenges him because he loves him. He doesn't try to spare his feelings, but speaks the truth. You have an idol. You have something that's keeping you from God. And so he goes wider. And so this is more than just an expression of Jesus' attitude towards wealth. It's a critique of conventional human values. He was was challenging the way the people felt about wealth, and he pushes out this uncomfortable message. You see, this man's way to life was blocked by an unwillingness to surrender his possessions and to follow Jesus. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, then... Come and follow me. If you want eternal life, 
It depends on your response to Jesus. And of course, this young man couldn't do this. He couldn't sell all that he had. See, Jesus didn't ask him for some proportional giving. He wasn't saying if you give 10% or 20%. He was asking for everything. And the man leaves unwilling to submit to the Messiah. Jesus then confronts his disciple. And he has this bizarre expression of a camel being threaded through a needle. And he's really saying it's impossible. It's easier for this camel to go through a tiny little hole than it is for the rich to be saved. And it leaves the disciples going, how is this going to be possible? You see, from their perspective, the rich had everything. They were already blessed. And if you're saying they can't be saved, how is anyone going to be saved? And then Jesus shares the gospel. It is impossible for any of us to be saved, rich or poor. It is the act of God that brings us into salvation. And so the shocked disciples are revealing their bias. Wealth means privilege means blessing. And Jesus is turning everything upside down. And he's saying there's a different way of seeing things. It's a paradox. Goodness and salvation do not come from our efforts, but only as a gift from God. And this is Lent. This is the purpose of Lent. To bring us to that place where we can recognize our efforts ultimately, even if we're doing them to be faithful and to be obedient to God, will always fall short. And it's a reminder that we need this gift. Riches make being a disciple difficult. And the rewards of being a disciple disciple of Jesus is worth way more than anything this world has to offer. Jesus did not teach them that wealth was evil, that poverty is better than riches, that only the poor can be saved. But he did teach that discipleship is costly, that wealth is often a hindrance to repentance and acceptance of the gospel. This is all about the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. To enter into the kingdom of God, we are called to submit. We must submit to God's rule so that God's reign is over every aspect of our life. Disciples must be prepared to give up everything. And so Jesus casts a spotlight on our everyday values. He's calling us to look at where our idols exist. And for so many, that is in money. Now, the point of this story is not that followers of Jesus must sell their possessions. I want to be very clear here. Jesus did not ask Zacchaeus to sell all his possessions. He chose willingly to give four times what he may have cheated. But Jesus did not say, you have to sell all your possessions or I won't come and eat with you. He came and had relationship with Zacchaeus And out of his response to Christ, he made that decision on his own. So anyone who tells you that you're supposed to sell everything and give it to the church is a fraud. But the central theme here is has to do with our loyalty. And so if money is your God, then maybe you should sell it all. You should give it away. 
But that's what Jesus is challenging of this rich young ruler. His loyalty was his money, his wealth, and his privilege. And Jesus was saying, give that all up for the sake of the gospel. And so how do we live this story? Because this is a tough one. We live in an affluent culture. We live in a culture that says everything comes through more. And if you're anything like me, the command to sell everything sounds completely unreasonable. And I want to be very clear with you. This one's a tough one for me. But interestingly, most of the ancient world would have heard this as radical, but reasonable. They would have understood that to be seriously devout, you have to give everything up. They would have understood what Jesus was saying. Because we need sometimes to let things go. You see, one of the things a disciple must renounce in pursuit of God's kingdom is the love of riches. And our society pushes the love of riches on us through every advertisement we see. For every new, bright, shiny item that we can buy to make our lives better. But Jesus gives us this totally uncompromising ethic that seems impossible to imply in the real world. Because wealth does seem essential to some degree for survival. And so the nature and degree of renunciation of wealth, which the gospel requires, must be something that is worked out differently in each of our lives and in each of our circumstances. And so for some of us, this isn't a big deal. And for others, this is going to be the most painful sermon you've ever heard. But here's the point. A fundamental aspect in the teaching of Jesus is that affluence is a barrier to the kingdom of God. And we are an affluent society. And so possessions, far from being an advantage, which the world assumes, are in themselves an obstacle to entering the kingdom of God. We have a strange fascination with wealth in our society. Economics tells us that more is always better than less. And we tend to be more interested in economic success than we are in excelling religiously. I'll say that again without tripping over my words. We often are more interested, when you look at our society around us, more interested in economic success than we are in excelling in our beliefs. We put money first. And such an attitude sabotages serious commitment, and it leads many Christians to a dangerous complacency about their faith. See, the values of our materialistic culture, they seep in, and they undermine our pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to be a proper follower of Jesus, we need to take stock of what money means to us. You see, economics falters in its commitment to wealth. There is a law, it's called the Law of Diminishing Marginal Utility. And that law says, the marginal utility from each additional unit declines as consumption increases. Wow. I'll say that again. The marginal utility from each additional unit declines as consumption increases. What does that mean? 
It means if it's a really hot day and I have an ice cream cone, that ice cream cone is really good. But each successive ice cream cone that I eat becomes less enjoyable. And ultimately, it will make me sick. So it declines in enjoyment every unit that I add. And this is exactly the same for a fancier car, a bigger house, a better church, a larger church, a better job. Anything you can think of, it will diminish in intensity the more you have. You see, I think what this tells us is what Scripture tells us. It's a blessing to give things away. I think this is an insight into my own life. This is a real-time struggle for me, and it always has been. The model more is better is a fundamental flaw in my own character. I want more. You see, you could have 60 people in the sanctuary, and I'm immediately thinking, how do I get 70 next week? I can have 50 people watching on the stream, and I'm thinking, how do I get 100? How can I beat Terrence? I'm thinking, we have good coffee, but how can we get better coffee? We have a pink church, how can we make it green? (laughs) I want more. I always want more. And it's led to some awful decisions in my life. So I don't stand up here and preach at you today. Part of why I left business was my own way of cleaning house. Because I knew if I stayed in that world, I was probably going to die from a heart attack. I was up and down with the business cycle. I was a terrible husband. I've managed to become a mediocre one. (laughs) I had to give that up for the sake of my own freedom. There's this wonderful wisdom in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says that the way to freedom is to clean house. Jesus said that the rich man in this story lacked one thing. He lacked for nothing. He had too much to give up. My friend Mark Buchanan, I love how he says it. He says, but in Jesus' strange economy, to lack something is to have too much of it. One thing you lack, Jesus says to the rich man, you have too much, too many shoes, jackets, wristwatches, pillowcases, stainless steel pots. You are encumbered with wealth. David Garland writes, Jesus' confrontation of the rich man warns our materialistic age that possessions bring hazards. Even when we are not engrossed in them, wealth possesses high voltage and explosive energy, and it strikes such reverence in the heart. No Christian is immune from this danger. See, Jesus is calling us to the only thing that makes sense. Lose it all. Walk free. Live life. Make your life about something so much bigger. Clean house. Get rid of those things that are keeping you bound in enormous lack. I'm not saying you should quit your job, move to Bolivia, nor am I saying that a bigger house is sinful. It's about your heart. It's about what you treasure. Because that's your idol. 
unless it's Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is calling us to trust. The second thing the man lacked was trust. And then the second point of Alcoholics Anonymous wisdom is to trust God. You see, we can ask for assistance, for Jesus to give us his perspective, to help us develop a mindset of sufficiency, because in him we lack no good thing. But you see, often I live my life thinking that it isn't sufficient. Jesus isn't enough. I need more. I need stability. It's not okay that I have till the end of May or now the end of July. Lord, I want perfect guarantee that I can be employed for as long as I want. And Jesus is saying, no, you're going to trust me. You're going to trust me with your income. You're going to trust me with your church. You're going to trust me with your family. For those that have babies, the most terrifying thing in the world is sending your kids out into it. You trust him. And almsgiving is about our most basic of trust. Because one of the barriers, I think, that brings about our lack of trust is a scarcity mentality that's rooted in a fear of lack. Lack of sleep, lack of time, lack of resources. And addressing scarcity doesn't mean we demand abundance. That's what the world tells us. But trusting God is about knowing that He knows our needs and He's providing a way for us to move forward and He takes care of us because He loves us. See, it's not just the rich young ruler that had Jesus' gaze of love. Jesus right now is gazing on each and every one of you and He loves you. And He will care for you. Now that doesn't mean we're going to get a bigger house. But He knows what you need And he's right there to meet your needs. But it isn't just about trust. See, the third point in Alcoholics Anonymous wisdom is to help others. See, Alcoholics Anonymous knows that you're never going to achieve freedom. You're never going to achieve transformation in your life. You're never going to walk in sobriety if you don't clean your house, get rid of all the stuff that's, that's binding you up, Putting your trust in God, they say a higher power, I'm saying God. And the third one is turn from looking inward to looking outward. In other words, get over yourself. There's freedom that comes through putting my neighbor first. The third thing the man lacked was compassion for the poor, compassion for his neighbors. Jesus is asking not only for renunciation of possessions, but also a total change in lifestyle. To put the needs of others on the same level as our own needs. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You see, whatever we have, whether it be skills or wealth or both, Jesus wants us to use it for his glory. And in his economy, that means giving them up and giving them out for the help and the sake of others. 
I love how Steve Cuss puts it. The way to freedom, peace, and love is through death and worship. Death to self, taking up your cross daily, and an end to a self-focused life. It's about worship, putting Jesus first in everything and everywhere and at all times, no matter where we find ourselves. It's about minding the gap and knowing how I am doing. Am I experiencing freedom, peace, and love? Because if I'm not, then the result will be a pursuit of more calendar and more money. Activities and stuff to numb the pain and blind me to my deepest need. The abundance of possessions can easily deceive me into thinking that they are the things that are offering me security and abundant life. And Jesus is saying, that's a lie. He's saying, come to me, give all that up, and embrace life abundantly. And so we return to Lent. Almsgiving is more than just meeting the needs of the poor. It is one of the pathways to freedom. It is counterintuitive. It is countercultural. It's the way of Jesus that once again reveals our deepest need and our need for grace. If you were anything close to being a person like me, this is just one of the hardest of the three. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. Because it stands in contrast to the message of our culture. It stands in contrast to the way the world says we should live. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. The way of Lent and the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, I pray that you would speak to every person here. Lord, whatever it is, whether we have a freedom with money and this isn't one of our burdens, or whether money is something we so desperately grab hold of, I pray, Lord, that you would bring in our minds a sense of peace and a sense of calm. That we would clean house of those things that are a burden and and a barrier to our coming into a deeper relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that we would put our trust fully in you. That we wouldn't trust what the world offers. That we wouldn't see our bank account as our security. That that would rest in you. And that, Lord, we would take our eyes off ourselves and turn them outwards and see the needs of others as, as, as being equal to our own. And in all of this, Lord, in all the ways that we will falter and fail, remind us that we too are in need of you, that you look lovingly on us. Lord, thank you for the gift of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that as we continue through Lent, that you would shape us and mold us and prepare us for what you've called us to. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.